All right. Well, good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Good. Fantastic. You found your way to the Sunday gathering of Resurrection City Church. I'm glad that you're here. If you've been here since the very beginning or this is your first time here, I'm really excited that you're here. And I really don't have any other way to tell you uh, than just to come out right and say it. I am not Joel or Julie. (laughs) Uh, My name is Aaron Shaw. Uh, I am uh, guest preaching this morning. I get to bring one of the last sermons that we have until we head into the Christmas season. And so I'm excited to be able to be with you and uh, bring the word of God. Uh, So if you're guest preaching, it is so customary that if when you start preaching, you have to show a picture of your family and then a few things about yourself. And so I'm just going to go ahead and go with tradition here. Uh, This is a picture of my wife, Julia, winning the Virginia State High School Soccer Championship and obviously photoshopped of my hometown, Portland, Oregon, and then an oversized logo of Western Seminary, which is where I've spent the last two years finishing a master's of biblical and theological studies with an emphasis in Old Testament and Hebrew. I've spent the last six years or so in different types of pastoral ministry, and I've actually had the chance to spend actually half of those years actually with Joel and Julie on the front side of seeing them dream about what this church would be, coming up with the ways that they would be trained and equipped to see a community that's actually in this neighborhood, reaching people here. And so the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking about this and the opportunity to be here was just thank you. Thank you to Joel and Julian, and thank you to all of you. Julia and I have been here for about a year, and you guys have been a phenomenal community for us to heal and to be your friend and to serve you and to love you and bring you food and soup. It's been such a joy. So it means more to us than you could imagine. So thank you for being the community where we have been able to be here and be served and also serve. So now that that is out of the way, here is my carefully prepared and effortlessly catchy introduction. In 1995, Robert Williams, the director of the Hubble Space Telescope, put together a team of astronomers and astrophysicists to study what they considered to be a typical part of the night sky. And what they decided they were going to do is aim this powerful telescope of what they thought was blank, empty, interstellar space, nothing there. And they wanted to see, how powerful is this telescope? What can we see? Because everything up to this point of this triangle that we're looking at, there's nothing there. Up to this point, we can't see anything. Even to the naked eye, nothing is there. And then you do what you do. You take a 10-day exposure of one patch of sky and then send it off to data processing and stitching. And ultimately, this this is what they ended up taking a picture of. Do I need to pray for the slides to move? Oh, there we go. This is the patch of sky. You can barely see it, and that's the point. It's so small, this small triangle. So after 10 days of exposure of this, and even if, if you were to go on and get the highest resolution of this little tiny triangle, and you zoomed in as much as you possibly could, there's nothing there. This is ultimately what they ended up seeing. That small triangle became this, and yes, those are galaxies, not just stars. 
But what they ended up doing was replicating the test two more times and just adding more adjectives to their original name. So it was the Hubble Deep Field and then the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, really, really creative. And they compared the results of how much more clarity they were able to get from their first shot with the Hubble Deep Field all the way to their most clear picture. And this is ultimately what they found. An incredible enhancement of what originally, at the very top, you can see the yellow square, the very, very top, nothing. And yet every time they replicated the study, every time that they took the picture over and over and over, they were getting further clarity on what was actually going on in this part of space. Needless to say, this project and image has changed the way that astrophysicists look at the night sky. The conclusion that I took from this after reading about the Hubble Deep Field was simply this. What was once assumed to be a disappointing pocket of empty space has now become the canvas for endless wonder and possibility. These images have upended a good portion of the science community to wake them up from their self-inflicted cynicism and to inspire them to ask, what else is out there? What have we missed? What if there's more going on than what we can see? What if to see something more beautiful, we need to change the way that we're looking at it? What if we need to come back to the same thing over and over and over, and every time that we do, it becomes more clear what's actually going on? And what you and I need to know is that what these scientists did with this seemingly empty triangle of interstellar space is often the same way that we treat church, God, and the Bible. We see a collection of ordinary stories, events, or genealogies, and we become overly familiar with them, and we lose a sense of curiosity and interest. We think that because if we can't see what's going on, then what we're reading must just be simple. It must be straightforward. Nothing there. For some of us, this actually applies to your life. You've taken a moment to reflect in the last five years and become so candid to admit that nothing miraculous has happened, nothing important, nothing noteworthy. Or maybe you had incredible plans for your life that were decorated with the ambition and high hopes for romance, education, and career, but while everyone else was seemingly taking off and moving forward, for some reason you feel like you're still stuck on the tarmac. Maybe you've made it and found that your life has gone so according to your plan that you've just gotten to this point where you wondered, is there really anything else in this world for me? You have everything that you've ever wondered, but now you're starting to realize, maybe this isn't actually everything I wanted. You see, each of these scenarios actually have one thing in common. After a while, we begin to fall in the same cynicism that plagued the science community about whether or not there was actually more to see or experience. In our sermon series so far, we've been taking a repeated look about how God keeps his word and the way that Joel and Julie have organized the teachings in the last three weeks have actually set me up with the most amount of work, whether or not they were intending to do that or not. It makes me really happy. Um, And so if you're looking for the text that we're going to be in, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. If you have a Bible, I also have everything behind me. So if you want to be able to just look on, you can definitely do that if you don't have a Bible. Or if you really feel comfortable with the person next to you, you can just lean in and just be like, hey, can I look on with your Bible too? I think that that's totally fine. Maybe ask them before you do that and don't be weird about it. So I think there's no other better way to start a sermon than to start with Microsoft clip art. So here you go. Matthew chapter 2 is designed in a very particular way that actually tells you exactly what Matthew wants you to take away. It has perfect symmetry. The opening section there at the top and then the bottom section actually have the same themes. And the middle two themes have the exact same one. 
that top theme there is the person of Jesus, the coming ruler of Judah, the king of Israel, the Messiah. It's talking about who this person is. Who is this deliverer? The second theme is that Jesus is being intentionally portrayed in Matthew as reimagining his life as if it mirrors and fulfills the Egyptian exodus as well as the Babylonian exile. Are you with me? And since Matthew's designed this chapter with brilliant literary symmetry, we should expect the two Old Testament scriptures in our teaching should actually tell us more about how Jesus mirrors Israel's story in Egypt and Babylon, and we should expect to learn something about how to understand this coming king and who he is. Are you with me? And because I love more Microsoft clip art, here you go. I just filled it in for you. That's, that's what our text is going to look like. We're going to cover those bottom two right there. So here we go. Matthew 2, starting in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, or some of your translations might have wise men, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi or the wise men. So before we go any further, let's just imagine ourselves in the story of Mary, You're a young Jewish mom engaged to a man that you have known since you were little, but now you're fleeing for you and your child's life into the Egyptian desert after a horrible, disturbing act of genocide has just been initiated by a king who sent an entire army after you to kill your baby. All the while, you're terrified, and all you want to do is return to home, but realize that that may not be possible. And so you flee to a foreign nation where you wait to hear whether or not you can actually go home. To be very, very honest, I would be unflinchingly tempted to think that God has utterly abandoned me. Maybe Joseph's story might hit home. Imagine that you're a new husband and you're trying to sort out a pregnancy that you certainly do not understand. All the while, your whole hometown is just churning out rumors of who you are and what you've done and how you've dishonored and disgraced the entire Jewish community. And it seems that no one has paid attention to the mere fact that you're doing your absolute best just to protect your wife and child. And again, remember, you're fleeing to a land that you have no familiarity with. I would be certainly tempted to think that God's plans for my life have gone horribly wrong. Or even imagine if you're a citizen of the military-occupied land that's Israel. You're subjugated to human evil by an empirical force that it's so far outside your control, constantly wondering if you'll ever be able to get through just one night of sleep in peace without fear of a Roman soldier knocking at your door. I would be so tempted to think that God's not showing up. We have to grasp that Matthew has placed these indispensable details right here and done so so intentionally. If you and I lived in Israel at this time, we would be, and if we were in the situation of Mary or Joseph or your average Jewish person, you'd be screaming out every night, where are you, God? Where's the Messiah? What's going on? God's plan is off the rails. This is not how this is supposed to go. And Matthew turns his attention to the Hebrew scriptures to answer those cries exactly. Look at verse 18, or 17 and 18. Then what was fulfilled, was said through the prophet Jeremiah, was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So what's going on here? 
right? The prophet Jeremiah predates Jesus by about 600 years, and he was a prophet to the kings and to the people, meaning it was his sole task to assist the people in understanding the ins and the outs of how to keep and follow the covenant commands of Torah. And just like Matthew, Jeremiah was actually a witness to a very horrific moment in Israel's history that actually mirrored the same one that Matthew had. The northern empire of Babylon sweeps in, sieges the city, begins to round up all of Israel's people, kill some of them, burn the city, and then deports whoever's left to go back to Babylon as war captives. Now, Jeremiah saw all of this and was apparently so rattled by his experience that he actually goes and writes poetry So read it in your own time, but his entire work of poems and narratives in the scroll of Jeremiah and Lamentations are his deep, agonizing way of processing the traumatic images that he was a witness to. What Jeremiah and Matthew are actually doing is explaining their devastating events using language from actually another Israelite book. It's almost like there's quotation inception. He actually quotes from the book of Genesis, specifically chapter 35. Genesis 35 goes like this. I'll read it to you. Rachel is pregnant but realizes that something's not going well during her pregnancy. And she ends up giving birth, but as she's giving birth, she screams out, Shemo Benani, which means his name is son of my anguish. And then she dies. And Jacob is apparently so horrified with his experience, he can't bear to have his son named after the tragic death of his wife. And so he changes his name from Ben-Oni to Ben-Yamin, which is where we get, which is, means son of my right hand, and where we get the modern name Benjamin. Rachel's birth of this son in Genesis 35 is actually the last of the 12 sons that Jacob and Rachel have and become what you and I know as the 12 tribes of Israel. This last son completes what would eventually become Israel. What a potent image. And if you're Jeremiah watching this nation that came from these 12 sons, centuries later fall to exile, murder, and violence, how would you depict the event? Apparently, Jeremiah was so moved by the maternal anguish of Rachel weeping that it was the only symbol of the tragedy that adequately captured the horrors of the event. Matthew looks at the tragedy of the baby boys being killed in Bethlehem and says to the reader, Rachel And God, weep over this. More of her children are being murdered right where she died. Matthew informs the reader that Rachel's tears stretch over the centuries yet again. And this time, Rachel's weeping over her distant great, 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 great Israelite grandchildren because of the horrors of Israel's rampage in Bethlehem. I did actually count the greats, by the way. That actually is accurate. You can go check that. Another Egypt, another Pharaoh, another Babylon, another Assyria. Seemingly, it just seems like another day as God's chosen people. But if you're a Jewish reader, you know it's not just what Matthew quotes, but actually what he leaves unquoted. You see, the next verse of Jeremiah's poem that Matthew actually intentionally leaves out goes like this. Thus says the Lord. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And your children will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own territory. You see, Matthew knows that the rampage of the empire is not the last word. Matthew doesn't quote this because to a Jewish reader, you would have had Jeremiah's poem memorized. You would have been reciting it in the temples and the synagogues day after day, Shabbat after Shabbat. And so why leave it out? It's 
It's almost like Matthew leaves it unquoted as to wink at the readers, you and me, to remind us yet again that even in the midst of devastating tragedy, God's present is near. There's hope that there's a future. Any Israelite reading the letter of Matthew would have put this together and would be weeping over the loss, obviously, of the loss of the babies, but equally stirred with anticipation to see how would their God ultimately bring hope for their future. It's not too much to say that this coming hope would be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. His arrival offers hope just as God promised to bring Israel home. But the circumstances, just as Jeremiah was quick to note, are severely less than ideal. To the rest of the world, this story of God is anything but going according to plan. Between the the exile, the murders, the political tensions, the famine, the corruption of Israel's leaders, there seems to be no hope in God's stories really getting back together. It seems almost too far-fetched that Jesus becomes king at such a bleak point in Israel's history. And yet at the same time, God's promise for hope breaks into human history and comes with the most incredible power in love that most people begin accusing Jesus and his disciples as being Jewish dissenters who are ultimately a threat to national security. That sounds so fun. I want to be a part of a movement like that. And the irony of our Advent text this morning is that Matthew screams to the reader, the circumstances are so less than ideal, but that is where God becomes king. I don't know about you, but I've never been so captivated to see Jesus as the Messiah who enters the world in all the disappointing ways. Have you ever thought about how odd that is? That Jesus arrives in all the wrong ways. At least to me, it seems like the systems of this world have been so perfected and common and become the air that we breathe that somehow when we find our lives wrapped in effectiveness and predictability, that's when we get to finally exhale and say, ah... I've arrived. I've finally tapped into God's blessing for my life. Finally. It's when you have a plan and then you execute that plan flawlessly and get the credit and the recognition so the result, and so that way we can finally say, I'm stable, I'm happy, I'm comfortable. And I have a hunch that it's in the middle of this Advent that we're tempted to think it's all these things going on according to the plan. Jesus arriving on the scene and it's cute and domesticated. To be very honest with you, I was, as I was preparing this sermon, I became so convicted through the Spirit because I realized I've been misunderstanding this Advent text and its message for years because I failed to grasp the gravity of the horrendous circumstances that Jesus' arrival actually had. It was me taking a second look at the Hubble telescope, reimagining myself within the story and realizing this is the wrong story. These Advent texts should make us abruptly stop and realize that the systems of this world, the ones that we are so accustomed to live into, are the ones that the Bible says are on the wrong side of the Jesus story on every page. For example, the Pharisees rejected the Messiah for a host of reasons, but the primary way that they believed that God was going to arrive was with far more public appeal and to be far more domineering. The Romans rejected the Messiah because his way of victory actually looked like death on a cross. And the end result is that they mocked him and tortured him because no king would ever die between two criminals on a cross in a public execution. 
Ultimately, if we have more in common with the crowds of people who claim that our Advent season needs to be domesticated, perfect, planned, articulated, measured, predictable, successful, and pomp than we do with the seemingly disappointing and ordinary arrival of the Messiah, then chances are very high we might be missing the king and his kingdom, even if it's staring us right in the face. Have you ever noticed how odd it is that we celebrate Advent as if Mary rides into Jerusalem with a parade, being hailed as the mother of the Messiah? She gets this perfect birth in her hometown, surrounded by friends and family, no rumors, no shame, no dishonor. Maybe even the rabbi and the chief priests come to anoint her and the baby. Herod's not killing babies next door, and maybe the presence of the Magi are actually more helpful, like diapers, baby food, and a DoorDash gift card. But instead, she gives birth in a feeding trough for animals in a town that everyone hated and was so far off the map that even if you went there today, you still wouldn't even have self-service. All the while, all of her friends and family are back in Jerusalem, shaming her and Joseph for being a disgrace and dishonoring Mark upon the entire Jewish society. Instead, it seems like God's love for his world breaks in right in the middle of a war-torn region full of weeping, lament, and darkness. For me, I've been in a season of darkness for many years. I've been plagued by an unreasonable string of disappointing circumstances that are shrouded in an envelope of depression. I've found that there are very little things in the last three years that have helped comfort me. It's only been in the last few months where I started realizing that maybe the system that I've created for wanting God to work in my life is actually the one I prefer. The one where God just makes my life perfect and impressive. The system where I'm this fearless leader. I'm an excellent preacher. Everyone loves me. I don't quietly struggle with comparison or anxiety about the future. <laughs> if I'm honest, I, I prefer this system. It's easy, it's efficient, it's poised, it's predictable. But this system almost always keeps God at a distance and keeps me in the shadows. I've just been wondering this week, if maybe the system that prevents God from actually getting to the deepest parts of my life are actually the thing that keeps me the farthest away from him. I began to realize that maybe the way that God gets to the deep work inside of me first looks like my life totally falling apart and embracing the reality that what I wanted for my life and how I wanted my life to go has not happened. The struggle that I have of wondering whether or not God's been within reach in the last three years might actually be the most ordinary invitation to me to realize that God's kingdom is actually breaking in through the darkness and pain, not in the absence of it. It forces me to ask the question, do I still want the kingdom even if my life doesn't pan out the way that I want? Do you? There's a sophisticated type of disease that sits at the core of our hearts, and it's one that often doesn't desire for God to become king through the brokenness, the ordinary routines, and the failed plans that we had for our lives. It's at the moment when we prefer our systems over the one of the Jesus story, we're confronted with the juxtaposing reality that Jesus does not become king through worldly victory and triumph. He becomes king through the honest tangibility of our disappointments, failure, and tragedy. Each story and quotation that Matthew's given in chapter two is not here for you and I to realize that it's just this perfect, wonderful crystal ball prediction of a bygone era that signals, don't worry, everything's going according to plan, casually move along. Each quotation of fulfillment is an invitation to the harder, more essential steps of getting in on this type of kingdom life with Jesus. And it requires us to willingly participate in the way that God claims victory through brokenness. 
And historically, the church has been on board with this type of resurrection life, but we've equally struggled to see the way that Jesus, that the Jesus story moves forward is not by returning to our more effective methods of getting God's work done in the world. Instead, it begs the followers of Jesus to identify with the symbol and sacrifice that his life became for the whole messianic movement. Ultimately, this is where Matthew actually picks back up with our text. So here's Matthew 2.19. Watch for the symbol here. It's so powerful. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Yes, this is what we want. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. But... It's never good when something starts with but. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. I would be afraid too. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, way far north of Jerusalem, nowhere near the center of Jewish life at the time. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. About a thousand people, not a big town. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, For those of you who love the Bible and love nerdy Bible things, you're going to love the next five minutes, and I'm going to love the next five minutes, because this is what I love the most. So lean in. If you're not into that, I promise this will be over very soon. I promise. But I would encourage you, this is really cool. You should pay attention. In all of the previous quotations of the Old Testament that we've covered in the whole sermon series, you might have noticed there's a direct quote from an Old Testament book and a verse, and you could go back and find chapter and verse where every single one of those goes. Now, for those of you who actually brought paper Bibles, again, the thing called a book with the pages in the middle and it's bound together and the words on it, um, if you have a Bible, do you have a footnote or a reference to what's actually in that quotation? Anybody. This is actually where I want like participation. This is actually the most fun part. Anybody. References, footnote, anything that's quoting directly from the Old Testament, going once, going twice. No, yeah, no, there isn't. <laughs> isn't that crazy? This is nowhere in the Old Testament. If you were to go and you were to research everything that you could about the Old Testament, this is not in the Bible, at least directly quoted. Isn't that really cool? So what's Matthew doing? What's going on? Again, remember the Hubble deep field. Let's lean in. Let's not just think like, oh, that was an error, or he misquoted something, or missing a Bible. Lean in. Lean in. Hubble deep field. Take a second look. Matthew, I'm going to try to summarize this, because Christian scholars have debated about this for years. So I'm just going to sum it up really quickly. Matthew is making a pun in both Greek and and Hebrew, which, by the way, says a lot about the access to Jesus that Matthew wanted to have. So it didn't matter whether you were a Roman citizen or you were a Jew at the time, you would have been able to pick up on this pun. It didn't matter what language you spoke, you would have read this and been like, whoa, you would have had the wind knocked out of you. So here's the pun. The name of the town, Nazareth, in the original Hebrew is Natseret. In Greek, they decided not to translate it into Greek, but just put Greek letters on top of the Hebrew word and make it Nazareth. But what we miss is that the city is actually the exact same root word for branch or stick. So if you were reading this in either Greek or Hebrew, you would read it like this. And he went and lived in a town called Stick Town. And so it was fulfilled through the prophets that he would be called a stick or a tree or a branch. 
Again, it doesn't catch well in English, but the message to the original hearer would have got you so wrapped up into the story. You actually know the most famous place where this word gets picked up. You really do. It's in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a natser will bear fruit. Isaiah is another prophet of Israel reflecting on the same horrors that Jeremiah did with his poetry back in Jeremiah 31. And Isaiah's reflections lead him to imagine that the exile is like a whole forest being cut down. There's nothing left. Babylon's taken everything. There's no more life. But Isaiah imagines that there's one stump that's left. And there's a tiny little branch, a small little stick that's actually popping through the stump from the chaos and disappointment. And that's going to create a brand new forest and give life and fruit to everyone who's around. And Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, was so captivated at the idea that God wouldn't just let his people descend into chaos, they began, he began to wonder, what's the farthest reaching consequence of God's love right now? What is he going to do? And apparently, the conclusion is is that Jesus will be the one who will ultimately be this branch. It will be the one who will be the deliverer, called stick man, or branch man, or tree man. Or if you're from Portland, like me, he's from Stump Town, and he will be called Stump Man. Get it? Because Stump Town's a roaster in Portland. They do coffee. It's actually not the best coffee roaster in Portland, I'll just be honest with you. For those of you who know coffee are like, yeah, it tastes like burnt, just terrible coffee. And you're right. Okay, I'm not up here to do stand-up. Here's what Isaiah is saying. There is hope. There will be one who comes, and he will be a new tree, a branch that will bring life. Again, do you see the connection? He will be from this town called tree or branch, but he himself will be a branch. There's actually one more. There's actually one more really interesting place. There's there's more, but there's one more interesting place. Again, you know this text, and it uses the word natser. Read this with me, or I'll just read it to you. You can just pay attention. He grew up before him, Yahweh, talking about Jesus, like a tender shoot, natser, like a natser out of the dry ground. He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we actually held him in low self-esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet when we looked at his life, we considered him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. But in reality, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, you guys, we are healed. There's this moment when Jesus begins to assemble his first followers in the very early part of his ministry, and he's talking, and Philip is being discussed in John, and And Philip says, like, you know, I was meditating on Torah day and night, and I realized the Messiah comes from Nazareth. And I actually met a guy from Nazareth. His name is Jesus. I'm pretty sure he's the Messiah. He's the real deal. And Nathaniel responds and says, wait, 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 Nazareth? No, nothing, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Again, his rhetorical question is actually really potent. He's trying to make a point. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. What can good come out of Nazareth? Nothing. Nothing good can come out of the place that's called Sticktown. It's literally in the sticks. 
I was really hoping that was going to land. That's a really funny pun. That's okay. It's fine. It's not lonely up here. Matthew wants you and I to see that the place where Jesus grew up, a seeming disappointment to his parents and apparently the rest of the Israelite community, actually becomes the symbol of what Jesus came to do. He is the tree. He's the man who came to offer his life through his fruit, his healing, his redemption, and a renewed relationship with God. There's no other way to look at this if you were a Jewish or Roman citizen and to say anything other than just, what a disappointment. The guy's from Sticktown, and he's a stick. He's crushed. He's killed. What's important about that guy? Nothing, because nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing. The problem with the expectations of the Jewish and Roman world at the time is the same problem, though, that we have right now. We're captivated by the idea that success and victory comes by many methods, even with Jesus as a warrior with a sword. But the Bible screams with desperation for us to see that glory came with the Jewish man on a cross. The most tragic moment of Jesus' birth story and death actually become the path for his triumph and ultimately to show that God's kingdom is not coming on the rails of power, victory, and top-down influence, but through the small, marginalized communities with no power and saw their lives culminated in the ridiculous claim that the Messiah's death and resurrection somehow actually was his and their victory. And that, my friends, that's the end of chapter two, and that's the end of our Advent series. What this means is that we're at the crux of the story where Jesus is born and begins his earthly ministry. We celebrate what Jesus came to bring of his life and personal ministry. And apparently it's so powerful that it cracks the darkness right open and provides joy, peace, and hope to everyone and everyone who wants this gift. You can take it or you can leave it, but Jesus is offering you, not just now in the Advent season, but with his life and with the whole Bible, a resurrection way of seeing the world. He is the promised deliverer, but the way you get in on his resurrection life is through faith and letting the gospel and the spirit grip your heart for a totally upside-down kingdom. Instead of the evil in this world gripping us and expecting that Jesus would fit all these boxes, Jesus actually takes into himself all the consequences and begins to restore humanity and his good world. And so you might be asking, cool, Aaron, what about tomorrow? What about real life? And I'll be honest and say that I don't know what you need today. I don't know what you need the Spirit to do. I don't know how you need to be healed or what you need to hear to take your first steps out of this building. What I am convinced of is that resurrection life means that you can take the events of your ordinary life, take your routines, your experiences, your plans, and all the disruptions for your plan, and then expect that deliverance and the gospel are the undercurrent to which all of them point. You can take your life circumstances right now and have assured confidence that if you're a follower of Jesus, he does not despise your pain and suffering. In fact, he is so well acquainted with it. Don't write it off as disappointing and hindering to the kingdom of God. This is actually the setup for the brightest and most vivid examples of the kingdom unhindered. We have a strong community in here. And resurrection is even in our church name. What if we could take this Advent season to expect it and be curious that resurrection life is breaking into our lives right now? 
What if we could be curious and expect that even in our darkest moments that God has the presence and the power to turn them into moments when the kingdom might actually break through your life? Again, the hobble deep field. If you don't trust me, trust astronomy. Without a holy imagination and a resurrection mind, we will struggle to see God as the one who keeps his word because we're really quick to make our circumstances the orienting north star of our lives. Without the curiosity that God is at work in your life right now, that Jesus will fail to live up to every expectation that you have as him being the promised deliverer. And ultimately, his death will be nothing more than the same sentiments that the Roman and the Jewish leaders had at the end of the crucifixion. What a disappointment. The king of the Jews, the acclaimed Messiah, apparently can save others but cannot save himself. What a pathetic example for a king. Maybe for some of you, you've been like me and you've subtly changed Nathaniel's question from Nazareth, can anything good come out of that, to my story, my circumstances, my situation, my suffering. Nothing good can come out of it. It's this same Jesus who is dismissed based on his appearance and his circumstances and his suffering. All the things about him that were totally out of his control, where he was from, the suffering he endured, every moment of Jesus' life, birth, youth, ministry, and ultimately his death were all marked marked by worldly disappointment. But as followers of Jesus, we know that that's not the end of the story. The hope of this is in the only glimpse that we get is that the Messiah will redeem us by suffering on our behalf. Again, not to make our wildest dreams come true, although some of them will. You will have some of your dreams come true but to show us that God's heart is to enter into human tragedy because he loves us utterly. The pastoral message of Matthew chapter 2 in the text that we just went through is that God is with us in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel. And this suffering servant, this Messiah, will bring healing through his wounds. No matter the kind of evil that we unleash to others or the evil that's unleashed onto us through the pharaohs and the herods of our day. This Jesus is the promised deliverer, but that deliverance does not come through just getting the gospel believed. It actually looks like us not trying to get our lives all ordered up and perfect and accomplished. The deliverance comes through getting the gospel lived. The gospel being lived means that you participate, that I participate in the lives that we're living right now, today, in whatever your circumstances. And then to take this gospel, to take this hope, to take this hope that you have that the darkness and the tragedy and the circumstances don't define you. And then to take it and to live it out in homes and workplaces and classrooms and marriages and with children and young professionals, whether you're single or divorced, promoted or unemployed, whether you rent or you own, whether or not we're in health or we're in the middle of a pandemic, the invitation of Advent for you and for me is to see that Jesus' arrival and inbreaking signals to every person, regardless of the disappointment, tragedy, and ordinary circumstances, that Jesus is coming to restore his world through these things. Advent is about the entry of, and arrival of Jesus to this world. We're celebrating the fact that God is keeping his promises to do something about the evil, the chaos, and the hard-heartedness of this world. And even our own hearts, what could be more exciting? Our God seems to not have over-promised and under-delivered, but kept his word and offered himself in the midst of tragedy as the way of the kingdom and to get the gospel lift. And so that's, that's my message that's what I have. We're going to move into a time of worship, a time of response. We're going to have the opportunity to just sit 
and to let this wash over you. The chance to pray, either individually or in the back. We'll have two people in the back that are being willing to pray for you with anything. We'll have the chance to be able to respond through song, worship. We'll have a chance to also take communion. We'll have a chance to be able to take the bread and the cup, a living symbol, again, a representation of Jesus and his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. Again, not through the perfection of everything that he ever wanted and look at how amazing I am and just look at me and everything will be okay, but through the disappointing reality of his crucifixion. And we get to eat the story because we're so apt to forget the story that we get to eat the story. We get to actually take it into ourselves as a reminder of what Jesus came to do. So I'm gonna close in prayer. Worship team's gonna come back up. We're gonna enter into a time of response.